The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained them, or ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come worship him. Come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Matt. Well, um... I don't know if you heard, I don't think anyone has told me that they felt this, <clears throat> but last week we had an earthquake. Welcome to Nashville. Uh, earthquakes, you wouldn't think that. I don't know if you heard about that. In Decatur, Tennessee, it's only like 160 miles from here, two and a half hours, something like that. There was an earthquake, a 4.4 magnitude earthquake. This is wild to me. Like, I'm thinking, okay, maybe we get, you know, tornadoes and storms and flooding. Of course, we've had that before. But now we're uh, receiving earthquakes, which I think is an interesting thing. Uh, and, and, and a lot of people in Atlanta even felt it. Uh, they said it was even a, a relatively shallow earthquake, only 5.5 miles below the surface. And so, but the ripple effect was felt even in, in, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, all the way up to Kentucky, this thing rippled out. And, and what was fascinating was reading the Twitter feeds, you know, people were like, are you tripping? There's actually an earthquake that affected Atlanta. Like people's stuff was falling off the shelves. Uh, somebody was calling, there were numerous reports of people calling the police, uh, saying someone was trying to break into their house because it was rattling the, the doors. They were like, somebody's trying to break in my house. They're like at 4 a.m. in the morning, Eastern time, 3 a.m. here. Isn't that crazy? I mean, what a weird thing for that. And I remember, I remember visiting actually a friend in, um, a couple friends, one, that, one of them moved back here, uh, in San Francisco, where, you know, you think all the earthquake kind of stuff happens, right? And asking, say, okay, have you felt an earthquake before? This was a few years ago. And uh, they said, yeah, but it's unlike anything you've ever experienced. Because different than like a tornado or maybe like a massive thunderstorm or something like that, you know, where you can kind of like fight, seek shelter, go underground. Like earthquake, you don't, you don't hide from an earthquake. Like where are you going to go? 
the whole earth is shaking. Like, you know what I mean? There's like not any options there for you. So it's, it's, it's crazy because a lot of people now, they get so used to it out there. This is when he lived out there. It's funny, now he lives here. Uh, and I'm wondering, I'd be curious what he thought of this. Uh, that people just get so used to the smaller aftershocks, they're just kind of like things are falling off and they're just kind of going about their business. But you, you, don't, you don't hide from that. It's interesting, in, in, this is Advent. <laughs> Advent is an arrival, it's an event. If you noticed in this passage, there's a proclamation of Jesus coming. And there's no amount of opinions that are being given, it's all reactions. The effect of this arrival, the effect of Jesus coming impacts, and it impacts everybody. There's no way of getting around it. There's no way that you can avoid it. It, it, it affects. The narrative that we just heard about these wise men, which I, I, in a minute may totally throw off all of your uh, nativity scenes and everything else that you have uh, before you, because it's very different than what you might think is really the effect that they were impacted so much so, even from such a far distance that they had to come see what was going on with this new king that was being born. Everybody has a reaction in this to the king. And particularly, we're gonna look at the wise men, but even Herod, even the chief priests and the elders are brought together because the aftershocks of this event impact everybody. And they actually don't give you Room to say, well, I don't know if I, what I think about. It, it says, I'm, I'm gonna react this way to this king. That's what actually the advent is. It's an arrival. It's a breaking in. It's an announcement of what is often talked about as we say the gospel, which is not actually a religious term in, in, inherently. In those days, I've mentioned this sometimes before, that, that what the word gospel means, even when they used this in these accounts, was a proclamation. It was used even in Roman times, a, a proclamation of a, a, a new emperor or a war, a, a victory in a war, the gospel of Emperor Trajan, that, this kind of thing. That's what's happening here, and it didn't warrant an opinion. It warranted reaction. And so Matthew, and different than Luke, and we, we're looking at a couple different narrative accounts of Jesus' life. Matthew, different than Luke, was actually a Jewish tax collector. And, and often with these accounts, he, they are writing to a specific audience in order to get them to see who's included in this. Like, who does this come to? What is this message for? What, who does it really impact? And as you see in this, it actually impacts everything, even countries that are far distances away in the East. And, and you'll see in this, there are two parts, two characteristics of these wise men. One is that they were seekers, and the second is they were followers. They were seekers and followers. As you read this, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, have come to worship him. Okay, who are these guys? These are seekers, right? They're seeking to worship him. Who, who are the wise men? The wise men were not kings. As many, you know, there's the old song that we have, we three kings, right? Uh, here's what they actually were. They're actually advisors to kings, they were pre of a priestly sort from Persia. And we actually don't know how many there were. We say there are three because of the gifts. But they were priestly advisors that gave advice to the two kings in the east. 
particularly probably in, in what would be called modern-day Iran. And they saw, and they were astrologers, stars and dreams. These were the people, a little different than the way we would describe it today. They were in the science of what was in the Babylonian culture of looking at the stars and interpreting dreams for their kings. This is something you read all even in the Old Testament. And for a king, it was important to have and surround yourself with wise counsel. And it wasn't so much that it would say, well, these stars are aligned, it's gonna happen. They were talk, trying to help their kings work out their kingdoms. They wanted to learn order. They would interpret dreams. You even see this in uh, other places in the, in the Old Testament. If even people who are worshipers of God, people that followed God, these men were from other countries, but they were advisors. They sought wisdom. They were looking to the skies and in dreams to say, what is this about? How did they get this knowledge? It was interesting. And, and this wasn't so, so, this isn't so far-fetched. I mean, think about this. Just last year, we had a huge solar eclipse in our city, right? And what was interesting to me was not just so much the um, amount of people who flooded Nashville for that, because Tennessee and Nashville in particular was one of the uh, major places you could see the solar eclipse, right? People flooded this city. The, all the hotel rooms were booked. Prices jacked up. Here's what's interesting. After that, if you read any sort of social media or went on any blogs, it was, where's the next one gonna be? People love to follow it. I mean, there are people that actually make a living and put it on their calendar everywhere around the country. You, they try and go to find where's the next solar eclipse and they put it on their calendars because there's something about this massive event that impacts them. Now, maybe they're not reading the stars, but there's something to this science of these people from in Babylon and modern day Iran that are thinking about what is lining up here? There's something big here. And they saw it as God was speaking in some sense to them. How do we make sense of it? Here's the other way they thought about this. These were Gentiles. Here's what's interesting. Matthew is saying as a Jewish tax collector that a group of Gentile wisdom seekers, counselors, are seeking a Jewish king it's a little bit off. And that's what I was saying, mentioning earlier, is that the expectation, what Matthew's wanting us to see, why put this narrative account in here? Is because Matthew's wanting us to see that there are people that we would not expect. As much as the shepherds, who were Jewish people, they were actually Jewish outcasts. These people were outcasts in a different way. They were people that were seeking to find him to find the king, and yet you wouldn't think that. There are even parallels here far back in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 6, and it's talking about Solomon, maybe a, a figure that, that you may be familiar with or unfamiliar. The Bible talks about a King David, and you may hear this often if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. David was the heralded king of the Old Testament, his son named Solomon, who was so wise that it said people flooded to come hear him speak wisdom into their lives. One of those people was the famous Sheba, queen of Sheba. And in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 6 and following, it talks about what she describes as what it means to come to this king to get wisdom. Listen to what she says. 
She said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are you, are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Here's what's interesting. Matthew would have in mind even that account of others coming to hear great wisdom that is going out from Israel all throughout the world. See, these seekers, these wise men, were not just seeking just, you know, relative wisdom. They were seeing something big, something that impacted them, something that would shape their world. That's what wisdom is. Here's the point, right? The point of wisdom is, is that we are looking at the world as it is and not trying to shape it to us, but us learn how we shape to it. How has God made it? See, in ancient times, when they looked to the skies of the stars, they were thinking that God has news for them. When they would interpret dreams, that God is trying to speak to them. As I heard one of my friends say about this passage, he says that God speaks even to them in their own love language. He even speaks to them in their own language to hear the wisdom. Here's wisdom for you to take. And isn't that the difference between wisdom and foolishness? You see that in here, even with Herod, who's partly Jewish and is in that land, even the chief priests and the elders, who have the same message come to, coming to them. And yet it is these Gentile magi who say, you know what, foolishness would be, well, I'm just gonna discard that. Wisdom is saying, how does this shape my world, not the other way around? And it's interesting as they come and not only seek that, but they seek fulfillment here. See, Advent does this to us. Advent says that we really need to be fulfilled. And and when we talk about fulfillment, it can be, you know, one of those many things of, of, you know, what do I feel inside as we end this year and kind of think about what am I lacking? What do I need? I mean, this is a really interesting time of year. The more I've studied these passages and the more again and again, the more I think, what other season has an entire litany of songs dedicated to it? Have, have like actual Spotify, you know, we can, you know, Pandora Channel, Spotify lists that, that what, what other season in our entire culture does that? It's because there's something about this time of year that we all are longing for something. We have some sort of desire for fulfillment. And here's what's interesting. Where would these magi hear all of this fulfillment language? Because they were, these were Gentiles, They didn't have all these books they were looking up and thinking, well, as these quotes, we saw his star from these, and and as it quotes even further in in, uh, verse six from Micah 5, 2, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you know, these texts, where did they hear them? Where they heard them was from the Jewish slaves that even had in their own land. You see, these Gentile magi were a part of the Babylonian culture, and where the Jews were before were exiled in these places. And so in the water, in the, in the air, in the culture of that day, they would have heard multiple things about the desire for fulfillment. That these Jewish slaves that were exiled in these countries that had taken them over, now currently it was Rome, back then it was Babylon and other countries, and Assyria. But they would have been in those cultures 
And these advisors, as you see, even in the Old Testament, if you look back, even Daniel, who's a famous character in the Old Testament, was a part of this litany of other advisors to the king they would hear about. And they didn't like a lot of what Daniel would say because he, he shaped his life around who God was different than who the king was. But what they, these men would hear is that. And they said, we need to connect this. There's some connection here to this fulfillment that these Jews are longing for and also what we're seeing in the stars and in these dreams. That there's fulfillment to be had. There's a longing for that. There was a, a New York Times article <clears throat> called The Meaning of Fulfillment. And I thought it was really difficult to read, but it, it fills up just the way that she's talking about this desire for fulfillment, and yet it's just always out of reach. Fulfillment is a dubious gift because you receive it only when you're approaching the end. You can't consider your life fulfilled until you're fairly sure of its temporal shape, and you can't get a view of that until you're well past its midpoint. The realization that one's life has been fulfilled is a good thing, but freighted with the weight of many days and the apprehension of death. It's also quite useless. Truly, listen to this, truly a white elephant, if it can, ever, it can never be exchanged or redeemed because everything has been exchanged or redeemed to make its purchase possible. Such a, in some ways, you think about that in fulfillment. And as she goes on, she says, what I'm really, actually, it's quite fascinating. It's almost like you're reading her working this out at the end saying, what I'm really trying to find, what I'm really trying to connect to is happiness. And maybe fulfillment is equated to happiness. But here's what's interesting about this. This is different. This fulfillment that they're pursuing, <clears throat> that the Magi are, are wanting, they're seeing the happiness that they get, they even see in verse 10, it says, when they re saw the star, they were overjoyed when they reached that house, when they reached that place. The, the joy that they have there isn't because they finally have happiness. It's because there's something fulfilled in, in both the past, the present, and the future. As Ravi Zacharias, who is a, is a great pastor, the, um, he said this, and I think this is really fascinating for us to think about. The traditionalist looks to the past. The existentialist lives in the moment. And the utopian looks to the future. But what Christianity is doing here, what this arrival, what the advent is doing, is saying that all three are right here. They're all together in this fulfillment. That the fulfillment of Advent and the songs we sing and the reason we have litany of these songs and we, we come back around every year to this and sometimes leaving this and taking down, you know how it is, you take down all the decorations. That's one of the worst parts. Because then you realize in your house how many blank spaces you have. Have you ever noticed that? Like you put up so much stuff every year, there's like a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, lights, trees, things, like everything. And then you take it down. You'll even feel it after, after you know, this Advent season. You'll get used to these trees in here and you'll come in in January and be like, something's missing in here. It's because there's a reality to that. It comes and goes. What's the truth though? The truth is the advent is an arrival and it's permanent. It doesn't change on happiness. It doesn't thankfully move as a white elephant being exchanged or redeemed or moved out. It's something that is permanent. The aftershocks are something not for our opinions, not to fill the space, but is. It is an aftershock for our reaction. What do we do with it? This is what they are seeking 
This is what the wise men are going after. They're pursuing something that is far bigger than them, and they know it. And in fact, they're the only ones that know it. Do we know it? I mean, these Gentiles who are outside of the whole realm of that are seeing something that is world-changing. And do we understand that what we're doing, even lighting candles and reciting these passages again, it brings us back to the fact that this is not just one time a year. This is a reality, an impact that transforms our world. And it brings those in. Think about this. Seekers, we are all in this room, Gentiles. We have nothing relative in common with Jesus. Anything other than just having flesh and being humans. And yet, 21st century, his impact is right now. It's seismic. We're here listening and thinking and meditating on the fact that this one broke in, arrived into the world. Because of these seekers sought that. And not only were they seekers, but here's what's fascinating. They're followers. Because what you seek is interesting. It will shape and it will expose what you follow. When you look at this text, what they followed, <clears throat> and, it, and it's interesting, it says the star. Let's talk about the star. You got a water over there? You tell me that? There's one right there. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry, y'all. Thanks. You always like that. Well, it's a little dry. The star, you know, when we talk about the star, and, <clears throat> you know, we have a little... Uh, one of those, uh, gosh, what's it, play school kind of nativity scenes at home, you know, so that way you can like throw the guys and they don't break, basically. <laughs> we have a bunch of those, but <clears throat> on that little like barn nativity scene, there's like a star there. And here's what's interesting. The star in this passage did not happen at the, this is going to blow your category for a minute. The star was not there necessarily over the, the, the nativity scene. It wasn't over the barn where Jesus was born. In this passage, Jesus was probably either a year to 18 months. And if you notice at the end of this, it even says that the star stopped over the house. So they're already in a house by then. And so it's further past that. And again, we don't know how many magi there were. We say three because we see three gifts here. And, they, and, and as they came, they brought that. But it could have been a huge entourage. Some think it could have been 12 to 20 who were really seeking this king. And as they came and they followed this star and they, and they sought it, some think that this star was not necessarily a star at all, but an alignment. In 7 BC and even 4 BC, it's recorded that it was possibly, we don't know for sure, but possibly the alignment of both Jupiter and Saturn. And that this brilliance of that shone for, and it actually showed up in three different times in that year. And so the Magi were pursuing this. They followed that. But here's the even bigger thing of what they followed. <clears throat> they were following a new kingdom. You see, this is what they valued. They valued a kingdom that was bigger than themselves. And here's what it is. Look, notice there's three, three reactions to this kingdom. One is Herod's. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. 
Right after that, he calls all together the chief priests and teachers of the law. I mean, you don't really hear what their reaction is. And then obviously through here, you hear the wise men. But that it, 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 the, the reaction to this kingdom is important because what does this kingdom do? Okay, I have to tell this, and I've been wanting to tell this, but I, I, granted, this will show you what a bonehead your pastor is again. Um, we were able, we were thankful to be able to go to Disney World um, for Thanksgiving. Our in-laws took us, and it was a, such a sweet gift, and it was really fun. We were at a specific place in, um, I think it was Epcot, and, um, and where we were getting on the uh, Nemo ride, right? I've been there before, but Nemo ride is not anything glamorous. It's not going up and down. It's you step into a clamshell and sit down. And, um, and so it's just, you're in a clamshell and, you know, we're doing it with the little, little guys and all of our, uh, cousins and such. And so we're about to start the ride. And all of a sudden my, uh, Ma- Megan wants to take a picture and my brother-in-law grabs the camera and says, I'll take it. I'll take it. He leans out and the, we were just a few yards in and drops the camera down into the little, you know, like conveyor belt thing. And so we're like, what? What do we do? Okay, so we're all, you know, just going and we're thinking, okay, what, what, is, what does Stacy do? I get out. Now, I don't know if you know, like, law at Disney, you don't get off a ride, okay? And so the whole thing, I mean, literally, it's really creepy. Right when my foot hit this conveyor belt, everything shuts. And, um, and, and I guess the uh, rule is, and I heard this later, is that they, they can stop the ride, but they don't stop the music. And so it's like, nah, 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 like annoying. You know, like imagine this is Small World or Nemo music just constantly, you know, the lobster crab dude talking to you the whole time while you're sitting there. And so they escort me off. I'm like, sir, why'd you get it? I'm like, oh, the phone, I need my phone. I'm, I'm a phone, there's the phone. We dropped the phone. Um, and they go, sir, you cannot get out of your shell. You cannot leave the clam. And I said, I go, dude, it was there. I, I just need to reach the phone. He goes, would you get out of a moving car? I was like, this is a clamshell going half a mile an hour. Like I'm arguing about the speed of a clam and saying I need my phone back. And here's this fascinating, Megan and my brother-in-law, they, they were like, he's gonna get kicked out of the park. He's not gonna come back. Like truly, this is not a joke. They take this very, they were not laughing. They did not smile. They took it very serious. All because I thought I was bigger than Magic Kingdom. There ain't no one bigger than the Magic Kingdom when you're in there, okay? That is the truth of what's happening. When you encounter this kingdom, the reality is we think we are more important. We think our things are more important. We think our agenda is more important. And when we encounter Jesus' kingdom, there are major reactions. The first is Herod, and we're gonna talk a lot about Herod next week, but this is what he does. He's disturbed, and even later it says, hey, I want you to go find him, go search for him, in verse eight. So carefully to the Magi, he asks this, as soon as you find him, report to me so I may go worship him. It's deceptive. Herod, in fact, and again, I don't want to say too much because we're going to really look at Herod next week, was so paranoid about his own kingdom, he murdered three of his own sons thinking that they were going to take it from him. His disturbed here is far bigger than, uh, what does this mean? He is seeking, and right after this, you'll see he creates genocide to try and stop it. 
Herod is wanting to destroy it. I have to ask this. This is not for, if you're in this room, and maybe you are this morning, maybe there are many of you in this room that are kind of wondering about this passage and Christianity itself. Maybe you're back into a church. Maybe Advent is something you come back for. I don't know where you are with that. But wherever you are in that vein, what is it for you who might say you follow Jesus and those you might say you don't? What does his kingdom do to your world? And how do you resist it? Because as much as we have our own agendas, we have our own time, it does infringe on us. And those of us in this room who say, yeah, maybe I do follow Jesus, I do. Hey, when it push comes to shove and his kingdom is greater, how do we react to it? With anger, resentment? Let's be honest. How dare he infringe? It's mine. This is my, my stuff. This is my money, my time, my life, my choices. The kingdom comes in and it's seismic. How do we react? Even the chief priests and the elders here, what's even sad about that is it's indifference. It's that you don't see anything from them. They're the people you would think of all three of these characters. They even have Micah 5.2 quoted here. That's where it's from. And you would think of all the people, they're the ones saying, yes, he's here. We need to go find him. Silence. Do we find ourselves as even a church indifferent to the Advent season or how we display it? Is this just coming back up once a year? We do the songs, we do the shopping, we do the visits. Or is there something more seismic to this? Because it warrants a reaction. And this is where the Magi even go and not only are overjoyed, but worship him. They fall down at him. And we don't know whether they became followers of Christ or not. It doesn't really give us that. But what we do know is they have a response. And here's what's fascinating. These Gentile rulers who are part of these incredible kingdoms are finding two of the poorest people in a house and bowing down to a one-year-old in this house. And I don't want that to come across as corny or something, but it really should show us there's something impactful the way that they viewed and understood and that God spoke to them about the impact of this child was world-changing. That his kingdom meant everything else needs to stop. I wrote a paper years ago on this poem. It's terrible. The paper, not the poem. And it's T.S. Eliot's poem, Journey of the Magi. I don't know if you're familiar with T.S. Eliot. Love his writing, modern poet. He actually wrote this poem uh, somewhere in the timeline of him becoming a follower of Christ. So it's actually a really interesting Christmas poem that he wrote. And you can, if you look online, you can even hear him read it himself. But what I find beautiful about this poem, and it's something that we don't think about often, is not just the journey of the Magi. And some of this poem is obviously speculative. He's kind of talking about what was it like to journey there. And you don't hear much. And here's what's interesting. It, it, it comes to this point where they're journeying to where Jesus is. And then in the poem, it stops. 
And all you see afterwards is what's the impact like when they leave? And that's the part to me that's fascinating. It asks the question, what happens when they leave? Because at the end of this, it says, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. Listen to what Eliot says in this poem. And this was a long time ago. I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this were all led that way for a birth or a death. There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here. In the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods, I should be glad of another death. Returning to that poem and thinking about what he's saying, he's saying, if we really encounter his birth, we're really encountering a death for us. And this is what he's saying. He's saying approaching this table shows you that we don't just believe in one advent, we believe in two. That his kingdom, when we encounter it in reality, means that our kingdom cannot stand. It means when we actually pray a prayer, and maybe some of you are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, we pray that, thy kingdom come. You know what we're actually praying when we pray, thy kingdom come? We're praying, my kingdom go. And Eliot is saying something, we don't really know what the Magi thought when they left, we don't know. But he's in his own heart encountering this, that once he has seen the child, once he has encountered Jesus, that he cannot encounter anything else in his life the same again. It's a birth that leads to death and thus to life. See, this table means that we believe not just again in one advent, but two. That he arrived the first time to bring us to this table, to give his body and blood, to shed it, to say, hey, this kingdom is for you and I am the king and you are welcome in it. It's not an exclusionary kingdom in terms of my basis. This isn't my table. This isn't the magi table. This isn't the chief priest table. This is Jesus' table. And the way he welcomes us to his table is by coming and giving himself. And guess what? We're preparing ourselves because if he says he has come once, he will come again. And that world-changing event built up over history, space, and time, built to that advent that we sing songs about, is gonna glory again in another song when he returns and his kingdom makes all the things that we lack and wish we had of fulfillment, fulfilled for real. All the ways the spaces in your house are lacking. All of those things that give you warmth and joy and man, I wish I could keep this up all year. You don't have to because he holds you. And when he returns, there will not be any space unfilled. His love pursues you, what do we pray? To the uttermost.